0: Snap Production From
1: the
2: inside with Peter Rix This is
0: part 2 of Peter's conversation with member of 70s group Hush and more recently composer, producer and sound designer Les Gok. For both Peter and Les, the growing success of Hush was a period of learning about the music business and about life on the road. It was an education on the job. In this episode, they look back at how they first met and some of the memorable and not-so-memorable moments of life inside a touring band in the 70s.
2: Yes, but Uncle Pete. Yes. Uncle Pete. Uncle Les. Um, when, we, when we did first meet um, and you were... The manager, and I've never met a manager before, I mean, you know, I'd heard of them, but I, you know, um, I'd heard of Brian Epstein and people like that, you know. My hero. Yeah, and your hero. And he had a suit. And you had the suit, and I and and you came in. And I thought, wow, you know, he. So th- there must have been like management school or something, you know, <laughs> that, that where these people come out of. I mean, you know, no, no,
1: that management school was me going on the road in the back of the transit van with you. Yes, but before that, it, be, before uh, I met you, you were managing s- the band. Right. So I, ha- I had a mate,
2: mm.
1: who was a drummer in a band, Kefiro, Steve Kefiro, my beloved old friend, long long gone, but one of the more interesting characters. He was also driver of number one in the Sydney Consulting Squad mm. in, and I was like That's 17 or 18 years. I'd mm-hmm. just left high school. And so Stephen played in a band and he rang me one day and he and I was at uni but still working. And he announced that his car had broken down and for those that ever knew Steve Caffiro, he became the drummer in a seminal Sydney punk band called X. But he always drove giant, thrushingly awful Cadillacs. So this car had broken down as it always did and can you come and pick me up because I've got a job tonight. So I went and picked him up, uh, uh, threw his drums in the back of my very small Fiat 124 Coupe uh, that I loved at the time and drove into uh, Victoria Street in Darlinghurst and helped him unload it into the Maccabean Hall having no idea where I was or what I was doing and help, literally st- sat at the back of the room as he f- put the gear in and then the band did a little sound check and I thought, well, I'm off now. And then the doors opened and about 1,500 gay men and women rushed into what was actually at the time called the Aquarius Club, which was totally illegal and the drummer was a copper in the consulting squad, <laughs> for Christ's sake, and... Uh, I had previously, in order to get myself through uni and things, I used to run suburban dances on the odd occasion and get in a lot of trouble, but it was was one of those things I liked doing and it came out of the back of school. So I'm sitting up the back and this bloke uh, comes up next to me in a little um, white shirt and black trousers and a little bow tie and and and, and a glass eye and says, G'day, mate, and... What are you doing here? And I explained, and he introduced himself as Bill Robinson, and he owned the club, but I mean he just rented the venue, and he had this committee, and uh, so I sat there being the know all that I was, and on night one, proceeded to tell him that the place because the place was thumping along,
2: mm.
1: and all it was was noise. It was an it was like a nightclub with. Trestle tables, and you bought your own Eski in with the booze. And Carlotta came through the door with six followers, and you know there'd be a bunch of drag queens that get up and mime. I'm leaving Shirley Bassey's. I'm leaving on a jet plane. And here's Kefiro's band doing thirty-minute sets till like two o'clock in the morning. And they were it was all fantastic. it was a much better gig than anything I'd ever run in a suburban hall. So I proceeded to tell him he needed he needed acts, you needed you needed stars, really, Bill, please. And so he says, "Well, who should I have?" And I'm saying, "Well, you know, Johnny Farnham, Colin Hewitt, the Zoot, all from the Times." So well, I'm I'm 18 mm. years old. I'm like mm. a, I'm a kid. Mm. And the next week, I I had a job running <laughs> his club for him. And uh, so I hunted down uh, who I thought should be booked for the for the venue, and one of those bands was Hush. And so they'd turn up and they were a giant hit, of course, four or five at the time, Mm. young, 16, 17-year-old, very attractive boys, did very well in a gay club. And then out of the back of that, um, one day uh, Chris Nolan, the keyboard player, had a record contract offer from from, uh, Warners and I was the only person because I was studying law at the time. And uh, he said to me, well, can you have a look at this? And lo and behold... Suddenly the record contract meant Robin Jackson, the then guitar player, got pretty unhappy about leaving his beloved girlfriend and having to become a real musician, And whereas stars were in the eyes of everybody else, but everybody had a job. Um, so they, they made Loud and Live the, the album and uh, created the single Get the Feeling. We all thought it was all terrific and fun and then all of a sudden, holy shit, it's a hit. What do we, what do, we do now?
2: Going back to those days, um, here we were. We just had uh, Peter. Uh, this is early days. We hadn't had a hit record yet. We were, but we had a, a bit of a following, Sydney and so forth. And we got booked to be the support act to Gary Glitter. And this was the time, like, we were perfect. We out glittered Glitter. I mean, our costumes were so outrageous because he got the opera company to create these totally mad costumes which we hadn't ever worn on stage before. This was our first chance we got this gig that he got, uh which was a two SM gig. More Park. More Park. Gary Glitter was headlining and we were coming on before and um this was our big break. Like we had there's ten thousand people. Uh you know, we uh, this is our first big gig really first gig in front of ten thousand people. Um and uh but there's no dressing rooms so all we had was the back of the transit van and so we said okay we well we can't just frock up and and, and arrive at, in front of ten thousand people with all our gold lama yeah we have to sort of you know arrive quietly and then all of a sudden bang we're there right so he made us we said well where do we get changed he said well the back of the van we said, the back of the transit van, you know, where all the equipment is. Yeah, 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 well, I got to just go in there and get changed. So, so here we were. When the roller shutter doors from the uh, transit van close, you can't see anything. You're in the dark. And here we are trying to put on these costumes which we'd never put on before—the gold lame jumpsuits and all this sort of stuff—and we're just I'm struggling to work out what the hell, you know, what are we, you know, we didn't know whether we had the clothes on backwards or whatever. complain, complain, yeah, complain, complain. That's all they ever did. Uh, anyway, <laughs> put it this way: when, when the roller shutter doors came out and we walked out of that van, I mean, er, I mean, all the bands backstage just went, "Oh my God, what the hell!" And by the time we walked out. As soon as we walked out on stage the the you know the basically the audience went quiet they just went hmm. <laughs> what is that um and I thought great perfect I can now turn it up and let's go <laughs> We used to
1: have uh, Les's wife uh, Margaret uh, and these are lovely wonderful old stories and it will never happen again but she has never forgiven me for the invention of the Gypsy Caravan Tour of Australia.
2: Another brilliant idea by <laughs> Peter Ricks.
1: May not have been one of my more uh, successful ideas, but we ended up with the van again uh, and, the, and the band, but the rules used to be no wives on the road. Um, we've, we're, you're, a, you're a touring pop rock group that needs to be seen as, you know, pop stars except we'll now go and do a summer tour through Jan- January in all the beach suburbs during the school holidays uh, up and down the coast of, uh, of Australia, some, particularly New South Wales. We did some in Victoria. And by the way, my other bright idea is to save money because we're carrying all the wives and all the children. So we'll we'll sleep in tents.
2: What a brilliant idea <laughs> that was. What a brilliant idea. Here we are arriving at, you know, Caravan Park in... You know, out of whatever it is, some beach somewhere, and we're, we're and we've got these tents, and 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 then like all these other people in the caravan park going, oh, isn't that hush? That's how, they're playing. that. Why are they? What are they doing there? What are they doing in these? And then here we are trying to hit stakes into the ground. You know, and, and we, the odd night you know, it rained as yeah, well. Oh my! And goodness. we were there, and then, and then so all night there's all these people all coming around to the tent. I mean, it's
1: anyhow. I'd like to point out that the 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 caravan section of the Gypsy Caravan Tour only lasted about four or five nights and Margaret won
2: because
1: yeah. in the end see, we, we, we moved into Can you
2: imagine? We, we, here we are, you know, pop, stars. pop band, pop stars, There's you know, 3,000 yeah. of these people, probably mostly from the caravan park, coming to see us play and, and we're all going into the community showers yeah, together. It well, was a good idea at the time, okay? <laughs> yeah, it seemed like it was going to make a lot of money. How many of these did
1: you go on? <laughs> I did. I was there.
2: Well, I think I was.
1: I think I might have slept in the local <laughs> motel there. Oh yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the final one was, which was always the great moment, was that you would regularly play in venues. And the, and in those days, that it was there was no GST, no no sort of money in the bank afterwards, no funds transfer. It was like cash in hand. And most of the promoters of these suburban jobs we'd play in where they'd get Saturday night three times in a row, you know, as Les talked mm. about, you'd get a thousand people minimally to these things. But there would be the odd dodgy guy that you knew already was going to be dodgy. So the great trick was get, we only ever had one road crew in those days. So you'd, you'd set the equipment, you'd have the drum kit on the stage and the band would be in their full regalia backstage and by then I still didn't have the money and sometimes you'd, you couldn't even find the guy. Who was actually in charge? But you knew who they were, so I'd have gone out the front to the to the where the box office was, and he wouldn't be there. And his girlfriend would say, "Oh, he's just out the back doing, you know, doing a bit of catering or whatever." So I'd send Keith or Les in their full costume, just to walk across the front of the stage on the stage with all the. I'd take the house lights out first, and then just send them, for, and they'd wave. A little wave to the audience and then leave again and nothing had happened. Well, of course, the place would go riotous. <gasps> they're here. They're going to play. They're on. And and as long as you stayed, they stayed backstage, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. At that stage, the place was like the floor would be bouncing up and down and, and that's when the promoter would come back
2: and hand me the money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, Yeah.
2: It's a, it, it was a Chuck Berry trick,
1: really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't care as long as... Because you knew that if you ever left those venues... Yeah. ...you were, uh, you time, were never going to see that money ever again. And it was a
0: great... They were great days. God, you learned a lot. Mm. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part two of his conversation with member of 70s group Hush, and more recently, composer, producer, and sound designer, Les Gok. The years of touring and live performing also meant time with the other Aussie bands of the 70s. They look back on the connections made with bands such as ACDC and on how Les began to get ready for life after being in a band. So along the way,
1: through those interesting five, six years, there were a lot of relationships built between the band, the Hushes, and a, and a whole raft of, of Australian acts, bands that went on to extraordinary success. Um, uh, the Keystone Angels, when we went to when we went to South Australia and played those strange mm. Wyallas and things, yeah. how did that, marks, what happened I... there? Cause they got, <clears throat> was Doc in the band in those days?
2: Yeah, Doc was in the band um, and they were a jug band and uh, the Brewsters were there. Um, and I remember sort of yeah, we, we always poke our heads around, have a look at the... The um, you know support act, and to see what what they're up to, and we thought a jug band. Oh my god, why would why would someone book a jug band, you know, to be our support act, you know? And they sort of did their thing, and they actually got a pretty good reaction. And I thought, oh well, that's okay. You know, the the gig is just to warm warm the place up. Um, uh, anyway, we 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 got on and, and we did our thing, and 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 it, it you know it, it went incredibly well, but the the Keystone Angels were at the side of the stage I could see them at the side of the stage all kind of looking and studying really and I remember when we came off stage they just you know Doc and everything came back um, and just said oh man that, that was so great that was so fantastic you know and th- and they were talking amongst themselves as well sort of saying things like you know we should we should be like that we, we need to get martial amps. we need to get like guitars get that big sound and uh, uh you know i remember saying something like yeah know that's a good idea now you should do that i think the, the jug thing i'm not sure that that's going to go too far you know so.
1: well 12 months later they were they were in sydney signed to alberts and and they were the they weren't the keystone angels anymore no do you, do you remember do you remember playing the Horden pavilion and the festival hall in melbourne with acdc as the support act
2: yeah, yeah, no, I remember, well, actually, I even go back further than that. I remember the first time we saw ACDC, and we were, you booked us into, bizarrely, a uh, rehearsal theatre or something in Cronulla. It was a place in Cronulla, and it was like a theatre, and, um, and we were going there to rehearse.
1: Oh, it was the, it was the picture theatre yeah. that they turned into a gig venue.
2: Yeah, and, and we went there to rehearse. It would have
1: been cheap. Liz, it that was, was well, that's it would
2: have been. absolutely I thought, oh that's God, we've had the drive you know halfway across the world, just to you know yeah anyway, correct. I remember we we got there, and there was a, a you know some band rehearsing before us, and we thought, oh, hurry up, guys, you know, just you know we don't you know who we are, you know, that. and um it was a c d c and they were, but it was with the original singer um oh. and this is before they released uh, baby please don't go and and in fact, I saw that they were... Rehearsing, baby, please don't go. I thought, you know, that guitar player—he's he's pretty good, pretty, pretty. Oh, I say short, though, you know.
1: I <laughs> didn't realise till long after we we'd sort of done those big shows with them mm. that the two brothers were actually George George Young's
2: young, yeah
1: young. I, I it n- had never occurred to me no. that that was the case, but I I, I my vivid memory is partic- particularly the one in the festival hall in Melbourne because. We we would get 6,000 people into those shows. Yeah. Uh, and they were all underage. And so everybody was 14, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, but Michael Browning, who had managed Billy Thorpe, was then managing ACDC. The brothers had given him ACDC because he was the big manager. Yeah. And he's up above the stage with an ACDC neon sign. That, that, was shot, you know, that was flashing yeah. away, yeah. and you're about to go on, so I've gone up and ripped the, <laughs> rip the power out of the sign. The next scene, Browning and I having a blue <laughs> in the roof of the Festival Hall because I wasn't willing to have the ACDC sign flashing as, as you guys went on. Well, it, this
2: is it. I, look, there's all that era of bands. We all grew up at the same time. We all kind of, and, and we all experienced, we all went through the same sort of things. We had a camaraderie um and 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 particularly with with us in ACDC because we we were literally all starting out at the same time I remember uh, we were just a, a bit ahead of them, so I remember we did uh, the two sm gigs at the checkers yeah. and 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 again DC were on just before us, and I had to race out from uh because uh, I was uh, a dispatch boy at George Patterson's then you know, because we all had jobs um and I had to race out. Uh, at lunchtime and try and get people to cover me because I knew I'd be late coming back um, and I didn't want to get fired from my $40 a week, week job um, and race down, uh, get to um, the uh, to Checkers and I remember I was waiting and ACDC and, and Angus was still playing um, before we got to go on, I was like, "Oh, hurry up! I'm going to get back to work." Uh, and I thought, "Damn, that Angus guy's a good player." Anyway, whatever, you know. But they were—they were—they
1: were always. I mean, you were—you were still at work. Everybody in the band in those days was still out of job.
2: Yeah, we all—we all had gigs because we, you know.
1: Well, we no—no no one really. I don't think any of us really believed that it had longevity beyond, well, here's
2: an album, isn't this
1: doing okay? Exactly.
2: One other story I do remember um, going back to the um, bands growing up together. Yeah. So, you know, we we became successful. We had a, a number one record. AC/DC were, were successful. They had, you know, a, a, a few hits. None of them were number one, but that's a strong following. I mean, you know and um and we all stayed if we if there was a big gig and and like the melbourne festival hall gigs i think uh, and perhaps during this one uh was we all stayed at the old melbourne um which was now i think it's now called the commodore or something but it was the old melbourne hotel famous and every band known to mankind would stay there and one time i think one of these festival hall shows which, uh, which we did uh, we were there. Ted Mulry was there. Uh, AC/DC was there, and ABBA. That's right. Yeah, and ABBA. Mm. And so, to get into the old Melbourne, you had to drive through this uh, sea of. And it was a courtyard. Remember that? Yeah. No. Sea of fourteen-year-olds with you know permanent you know guards or whatever there, because in that in the old Melbourne was ABBA, ACDC, Hush. Ted Maori and the rest all turning the poor old old Melbourne upside down um and um and then you know like the the other thing that we used to do the as a part of the thing was that um because hush weren't a, a big party going outfit um you were you were babies we were babies, but uh, but neither was Angus. See, Angus. Yeah, but Bond Scott wasn't a baby. But bon Scott wasn't. He was actually the elder, and so he 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 uh, he went hard. Definitely, he went hard. He and Phil, uh, but the, that kind of left Angus kind of shag on a rock, you know, because all his mates are all out going pretty hard, and uh, Angus didn't drink or what he, you know. So he'd come and hang out with us and, and we played play cards. Uh, we'd sit there, have a cup of tea and play cards. That was about as exciting as it, it got at the old Melbourne. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I'm not going any further with those sorts of <laughs> conversations. The, 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 the one interesting thing about all of those uh, performers, those bands that you've talked about, is the, the, the joining of the dots... The common bond was because there was Skyhooks. If you remember, they arrived midway through your reign of terror, mm. uh, and Ted, who'd been there from the beginning, but and and ACDC and the JPY. Angels, yeah. John Paul Young. Every one of you was joined at the Ips because on on Saturday afternoon, in the Elstonwick Studios at the ABC, in the canteen, you'd all arrive hung over as all hell from having to perform the night before somewhere in Australia, get up at the crack of dawn, get a plane to Melbourne because you couldn't afford not to be that. Radio wasn't the only dominant force in those days and that's the first time that television had, had a major impact.
2: The other camaraderie part of it which is uh, I've often thought about um, you know, one of the things that united a lot of the people who uh, from that era and and probably the era before us was that it was very, very blue-collar. To be in a band, um, you weren't, you were unlikely to be tertiary educated um, and unlikely to have come from, you know, one of the better suburbs and so forth. You were more likely to have been a factory worker Someone who worked on the roads or was a petty criminal. Um, and there was plenty of those uh, in the in the, uh, and it was it was real rogues gallery. A lot of fun though, a real rogues gallery. I I kind of didn't fit in that well, uh, but doesn't matter. That's I certainly came from a blue collar background, mm. um, and and so everyone had this sort of shared experience. And one of the difficult things about giving up uh, or or if, if contemplating giving up um, being in a rock and roll band is what are you going to go back to? Um, and for most people, it doesn't really matter. I mean, a, a, a bad rock and roll band that hardly doesn't play that often and doesn't really earn that much money is still a better life than... A lot of the kind of blue collar existences they they would have otherwise had to have gone back to, which is working in a factory, whatever. I know it sounds.
1: But no, no but the, but the yeah. talent piece is that um, no one that has any modicum of success at twenty two or twenty three ever wants to see their life beyond thirty. Mm. They they there's no sense beyond that for for virtually a hundred percent of those guys mm. and. And in those days, in particular, the road meant that, in order to, to to actually profit from your your success as a as a recording artist, you had to go and work. And
2: that's a, the world these days is a very changed place. It's a very changed place, and that's why when we go back to what I did afterwards, mm. I had a vision of um, you know what you could do afterwards. But for a lot of my contemporaries, there, there was no vision uh, because there really wasn't any other choice. Um, uh, you know, playing in a band is as good as it gets. It doesn't matter how bad that, you know that how tough the touring is or anything. That's as good as it's ever going to get.
1: So we we all have to understand and acknowledge that what you were, were a car was a car perf. You saw Silver, Alfa Romeo... Absolutely. ..and said, I aspire to that. What the? What do
0: I have to do? Who do I have to fuck to get that? Exactly. And I found out. In part three of Peter Ricks's conversation with Les Gock, they look at Les's personal reinvention. Being in a successful Australian band in the 70s didn't open as many doors as one would expect. Les needed to carve out his own path for the next phase of his life... It's a story that is equal parts about music and about one's own power to create personal change. A story that is just as relevant for today. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks.
1: Listener.